This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome to my conversation with newly minted Oscar nominee Eskil Vogt. Just a few days after we talked, Eskil was nominated for Best Original Screenplay together with co-writer and director Joachim Trier for their fantastic film The Worst Person in the World. And they were also nominated for Best International Feature. I had such a fun and interesting talk with Eskil about The Worst Person in the World, his incredible 15-year collaboration with Joachim Trier, a pairing that started already in their teens, their process, and much more. We also talked about his new film, The Innocence. The Innocence is a Norwegian horror film, a supernatural thriller about four kids, neighbors in an apartment complex area close to a forest. Out of sight of their parents, they discover that they have hidden powers. Their play turns dark, and childhood innocence truly turns sinister. Eskil told me so many interesting things about this film, his own childhood memories that he brought into it, and so much more. We don't get too much into spoilers, so you should be safe. So, hope you enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Eskil Vogt. Eskil, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for these great movies you have this season. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Just this past week, ahead of the Oscar nominations and releases here and there, everywhere I've looked, there's been massive love for Worst Person in the World from the industry. Judd Apatow called it stunning. Cameron Crowe and one of the UK's best uh, rom-com directors, Richard Curtis, said it was is a masterpiece. Isabelle Hubert. Um, hearing all this from different film artists all over different genres, what do you think has resonated so much with this movie? That's a very good question. I mean, it's it's strange. I mean, I sit down with, with Joachim, my best friend in a room, and we just throw ideas around about stories about people in Oslo, you know, and we, we, we don't really think that they will travel. I mean, that's not why we do it. So... Uh, uh, I'm not sure, really. I, I, maybe when you talk about those people, it could also have to do with just that love of films that we have that resonate with people in the industry. And a lot of them have said that they wish that they still made those kind of movies in the US. And they feel that kind of modern take on like big existential themes and love and just coping with living, you know, and, and making something cinematic and hopefully funny and touching about that. That's something they wish they did anymore. And and maybe maybe it's true. Maybe the U.S. film industry has dropped the ball on those things and we in Europe can just take the ball and run with it now. And that, that's our thing. Yeah. <laughs> this industry is certainly changing in terms of sort of that type of adult-themed movies, um, 
not adult movies, but adult theater movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Make that distinction clear. Yeah. yeah. Um, the film at Lincoln Center just did a retrospective about your incredible 15 years with you, Akeem. And one of the things I learned about you, your wonderful collaborations that you guys met when you were teenagers. And you, Eskil, you would pick a VHS randomly out of some sales bin, and you guys would have these movie sessions. Um, tell me a little bit more about those sessions when you were teens. What was there? Was there popcorn and beer? And what movies were they? Well, the movies was like anything. I mean, uh, we would watch anything. And it's weird. I mean, I can't, uh, I don't know exactly how old we were when we met, like 18. And it's interesting that you can meet someone at that age. And uh, and we both want to make movies and we loved movies. And we didn't have anyone else in our circle that had exactly that passion. So we just clicked and you can become like instant best friends in that age. And suddenly from not having known each other, you spend every day together and uh, watching. We watched like three, four films sometimes uh, <laughs> during a day and ended like three in the morning watching a VHS of uh, last year in Marine Bad by Anna Renee. And I can remember Joachim falling asleep, but saying, oh, this looks amazing. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm too tired. And then uh, <laughs> and then he watched the end the next day. So uh, now it was uh, it was a weird time. And we didn't make any distinctions between watching. We thought it was fun to watch like those straight to straight to video movies that were less than 80 minutes long. And then watch go to the Cinematheque in Oslo and watch some classics. Uh, so uh, I guess we just had this appetite just for discovery. And when you picked that video out of the sales bin, did you go by the cover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was, uh, I think, the uh, one you're referring to is uh, a, a French movie by uh, Arnaud Desplechins, who I had no idea who was at that time. And I just saw that uh, it wasn't like an English import VHS that hadn't sold. So it was lying there and was very inexpensive. And I looked at it and I'm like, hmm, these, these Parisian young people look so cool. <laughs> uh, let's check it out. You know? and, and it was a masterpiece. You know, sometimes you're lucky, lucky to find stuff like that. One of my, my favorite movies when I was a teen, you said that Breakfast Club was your gateway to Bergman. Why was that? Well, uh, I, that, that was a movie that both Joachim and I had seen, I mean, before we met, when we were uh, maybe in our early teens, something like that. And I, I just can remember, we both we talked about it, we both had that feeling of, uh, oh, I wish I had those problems. I can't wait until I have those problems, you know, because uh, uh, that's the thing about watching movies uh, that you always feel the characters have more interesting dilemmas and problems than you have and you want <laughs> you want to find yourself in that situation so true <laughs> uh, uh, but uh it, it, i think it was the first time i saw a movie that took characters i might almost my age seriously you know and, and really let them express themselves about their situation and that was john hughes talent of writing uh, was that he always he never never looked down on those characters i mean he can make fun of he makes easy jokes in a lot of his movies and some of them are a little stereotyped and everything but he always wanted to make movies from the young people's perspective and uh, and uh, that rang true i think and i think uh, when we make the joke that it was our gateway drug to bergman it's because they i mean he just felt oh, 
you don't really have to like cut away all the time. Sometimes you can just let the characters express themselves. And, and you have that faith in that, that moment of staying with that actor who is really in that uh, character and expressing it and the text is good. And it's that, that's also a cinematic moment. Well, most of the other youth films were just like people running around and, and doing stupid stuff, you know. Joachim told me also, that, I mean, you guys discuss a lot of movies when you're writing together. You just talk and things. What were some of the discussions particularly around Worst Person in the World? Well, first impulse before we had any idea what we were going to make was that oh, we really wanted to go back to the... Uh, origins you know what we did with our first movie uh reprise and and uh, that freedom we felt and just uh making like a character drama that was also funny and had maybe voiceover and very character specific and an oslo story we just wanted to re-explore that I, f I felt we had kind of worked a bit against it because we were afraid to repeat ourselves and then we said let's let's just go there you know let's just uh, not uh, care if we uh, if we do something we already done, just uh, uh, and uh, of course that meant going back to our in uh, inspirations at that time that were maybe yeah Bergman or uh, uh, scenes from a marriage, but also like some romantic comedies because we knew we want to make a movie about love and relationships and the way that relationships are not as perfect as they usually are in romantic comedies that usually you might be good for each other but not the right time or you think that relationship isn't important and it's afterwards you realize that it was maybe a really important relationship in your life and uh, you didn't know it when it happened and a classic rom-com dilemma yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> when, no, he, when harry suddenly realizes he has to run and get sally <laughs> yeah yeah but that the thing is that uh, in real life it's too late to make that run you know it's uh it's like uh, 10 years after or whatever you know and you realize it when the other person is in a relationship or you're in a relationship and you it wouldn't feel right to run to them because the moment's gone. Real life is so hard. Yeah. So we just want we just wanted to make like a romantic comedy that had a drama element and uh, and was about real stuff for us. Yeah. But we wanted to keep it. I mean, we even watched musicals and uh, we even thought we might have some musical elements. And I think you still can. I mean, no one bursts into song, but still you can feel that thing in some sequences that suddenly set pieces beautiful set pieces yeah. around oslo did you always have a female perspective in mind or it came quite early and one of the things that joachim brought into the writing room was that she really wanted to uh to create a lead for renata reinsve the actress uh she had no idea of course that we had that uh, on our uh but we didn't know that we we might have found some other idea that didn't have that part for her but it fitted in with what we were starting to to work on so yeah it was something that was quite early when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now The Innocence is your second movie as writer-director. Now, do you write differently when you know that you're going to direct? Or like when you're writing with Joachim, you can go a bit crazy and give him a hard time because he's the one who's going to be directing? <laughs> we, we have that rule, and I have that rule as well when I write for myself, is that keep like the practical problems outside the writing room because you learn so much making movies. It's so easy to, uh, to limit yourself. Even like stupid things like shooting in cars is so hard because they're so small and uncomfortable. It takes a long time. So then suddenly you're like back in my no, no car scenes or no shooting at night because the crew is so tired and it's so slow. And you, know, uh, and you have to take all that away and just be really free. So we, we write the craziest stuff uh, and I do as well. I mean, my movie ended up with four kids and a cat. <laughs> the most difficult. It's like the most difficult thing you can ever do is uh, to work with kids and animals and uh, cats in particular. So well, the so cat didn't uh, have a good ending. Well, the, the real cat, of course. Is <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, so, so uh, hard time. There's all, it's always a hard time because we, we always aim high. I mean, trying to make stuff that uh, might be original that hopefully people haven't seen before. And that means you, that you take some risks. So that's always part of it. Both are uh, in both, both our films, I think. But uh, what's different is that when it's the process, when I write with Joachim, uh, we know when we, to, when we sit together, the ideas that we come up with is to try to find a movie that he can direct and we and we both very verbal. Joachim especially really likes to talk about stuff, you know? So, so it's more, even more, I mean, we know each other so well, so of course there's a lot of intuition and things that aren't said, but there's also a lot of things that are being said and expressed and, uh, and analyzed. And when I write alone, there's maybe, I, I can postpone that a little bit more, you know, and, and work more, with the unconscious in a way so maybe that's uh that's a difference and where did the initial idea come from for the innocence well actually it was one idea i i threw at uh joachim when we were brainstorming for what became thelma mm -hmm. also about psychokinetic powers yeah yeah we, we, that that's one i mean uh, that's one of the films we made when we were taught let's go in a completely different direction in our uh, film interests, you know, let's try to go into more like the genre film and, and explore that visual kind of storytelling that you find there. And we were brainstorming about different stuff we could do in that. Uh, and that was long before we found that story that became Thelma. I, I, I just one day proposed the story about a group of kids playing together and, uh, uh, and in, while they were playing something inexplicable, magical happens. And then they go back to their parents, sit down at the dinner table, and that magic isn't there anymore. And you'll ask yourself, uh, did that happen? Or was it their imagination? And I said, Joachim, it could be interesting to make a movie about that magic childhood where that actually happened. That was real. And Joachim, maybe because he didn't have kids yet at the time, mm -hmm. wasn't that interested. So it became like one of the thousand ideas that just fall to the floor because that's how we work. I mean, if it doesn't stick at the other the person we we leave it and we find something we're both uh, interested in 
so that was normal but then it came back to me later and i thought um, there's something there and i think it comes from the fact that i became really interested in childhood when i had kids of my own because i just didn't like i said when i watched breakfast club i wanted to want to have that problem i i wanted to be older than i was all the time <laughs> growing up i wanted to yeah, I, I want to be a teenager and I want to be an adult. And when I was an adult, I left all behind me. And when I got kids, I suddenly uh, rediscovered childhood and became curious about that period again. And then uh, uh, and I, I just was reminded of how radically different it is to be a child than to be an adult, how open you are, how intensely you feel stuff and uh, how little you understand of the world which also makes you extremely open to everything because you learn new things every day. So they have this, uh, they live in this parallel world of adults. Uh, and I feel that with my kids that they, they experience so much they can't tell me because they don't have words for it yet mm -hmm. or they already thinking of something else. So that big thing that happened at school, they don't even think about it enough to tell me about it, you know, or they don't, or they don't want to for some other reason. So it's like, there's even if you're a presence parent and you're there and you try to talk to them and be there, there's there's still this huge unknown secret world they live in. And I, I, I really felt like, oh, I want to make something about that. And it's so interesting, the questions you pose in the film about children's morality and where it comes from. Is it there to begin with or, or you know, how, what do we do with our children? Do you have a, a particular moment of your own personally from childhood where you were in a situation where you had to decide this is right and this is wrong? In uh, working on the movie, I, I had to ask myself the question because uh, I talked two people around me and almost everyone had some story about some transgression of doing the forbidden or doing something cruel towards animals or or other children or I mean younger siblings have suffered through a lot you know uh, and uh, and I asked myself why why is that and, and I have this story of uh, when I was like nine or ten we were in the uh, I had this like air gun that shoot like the small uh, lead uh, pellet kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, and I, I was allowed to, when we were on holiday, play with that. And I remember having it and I saw a seagull flying and I, I aimed and I shot and I could see that I hit because it moved in, in the air, but it's a big bird. You don't like fall down dead from that thing but i had learned i knew that lead was poisonous so i i i i thought about that afterwards and i was thinking and imagining how that seagull suffered and maybe died slowly in agony because of me and i had this horrible feeling and i i didn't even think of telling my parents about it i don't know why but that i think that's how kids deal with stuff often they just keep it inside like that and i thinking maybe that was something that made me learn for myself that you shouldn't be cruel to animals or other creatures that are less powerful than yourself or you, you shouldn't do that and uh, and maybe that's all those stories are about the kids trying to figure out what's their morals what's their morals and not the morals of your parents because that's how morals begin is your mother saying no you can't do that 
And of course, when you're a certain age, we're an adult, you can't really say, I don't want to do that because mom says I can't, you know, you have to find your own set of morals. And I think maybe that's part of that uh, transgression experimentation you do as a kid when your parents aren't watching is trying to find out where's your limit, what feels right for you so that you can have your own set of morals. That's something that came to me while I was thinking about my own childhood and, and talking to other people preparing for this film. One of the things is that we've seen a few examples of, there's more, of course, but in Scandinavian horror, so to speak, like in Midsummer and in your film, is, is that in the summer, the sun hardly ever sets. So it's basically horror in full daylight, which makes it interesting. What other parts of sort of Scandinavian culture and Scandinavian people do you find horrific? <laughs> I mean, that you can play with in this film. Well, that's a good question. And uh, I talked to, uh, I showed this movie in Norway during the release and one of the people interviewing me was like a professor uh, in film history who had written a paper about Norwegian horror films and he said there's always nature is always scary in uh, <laughs> in the Norwegian films and, uh, and maybe I have an aspect of that in my movie I mean the, there's not nothing supernatural about the nature but I, I, I think there's something about that which I also had in a uh, period in my childhood is to live in these big apartment buildings and your parents are there but then you go out and you go into the forest because these things in Norway they're built at the edge of the city and what do you have at the edge of the city you have forests endless forests so uh, and that feels very exotic to a lot of people in uh, who see the movie in other countries because that's kind of like a luxury to be close to nature uh, but uh, and uh, and the poor people live like inner city concrete stuff but in Norway we have that you can uh, go there inside the forest and what's that contrast of being socially observed with a lot of people oh, living in the same place and then you go into the forest and you're completely alone and I can still remember that freedom of like there's no parents here there's no one watching you can play your games you can uh, do your thing you can experiment you can but no one's really judging you or watching you and that's uh so so that's how the nature came into my story but uh yeah the horror film professor said that's that's something very scandinavian we were talking about genre and worst person in the world this is rem you think of things like firestarter or carrie or on the lighter side maybe et or something you know children who are bringing their emotions into something metaphorically or supernatural what are some of the references you've had in your life that became came into this movie well of course i read a lot of stephen king when i was very young so maybe that's in my i mean two of the uh, films you're uh, referencing are adaptations of yeah, stephen he's good king, at but, kids yeah, <laughs> good with kids yeah so there's some maybe there's something there that just uh, ingrained in me but uh i had a like a big reference for this movie was uh, manga by uh, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who uh, uh, did Akira, uh, both uh, both the manga and the and the film, and uh, and he made uh, Dumu, uh, which is like a graphic novel he made before Akira, which is very, I mean, it's most obvious reference. If you read that, you'll see there's references to it in my film, and also uh, with my cinematographer uh, Stuart Labrant Kreven, we we looked at those drawings also because they're. The style is so interesting. So that, that was a big reference, actually. That's not the movie. And, uh, and for me, like the, 
the supernatural aspect comes from the idea of the magic of childhood. And if there's magic, that means they can do something magical. That means they have supernatural powers. And that's how that came into it. And also I, I can remember being a kid and other people have this story as well, that they put something on the table, like a, a glass, and they would just look at it and feel like if they concentrated enough and maybe they can move it with the power of their mind, you know? And I, I, I had that and a lot of people had that. And I think maybe that's because as a kid, you're so, you feel so helpless. You have so little power. Everyone decides everything for you all the time. So you just dream of, of imposing your will on the world. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I think that's where the idea of the telekinetic things comes from, that it comes from the characters, from the themes in that way. And, uh, and I didn't really want to uh, rewatch those movies about supernatural kids, or especially not the evil kids series, because that's the opposite of what I want to do, because I wanted to be with the kids and understand them and not be afraid of them from the outside. You know? What I thought was really interesting was that the powers that your children have are just there and, and they think they're fun and they're normal. And then it's sort of like when they go to the parents, that's when you sort of start thinking, no, no, you can't have that, like a loss of innocence in childhood, that that magic disappears. It's more of a representation of that, really. Definitely. And I, I feel like like when the kids in uh, the movie, well, at least those who uh, survive, exactly. <laughs> when they, when they uh, grow up and look back at it, they'll rationalize. They'll say, oh, no, it, it, it just it was such a strange time and that tragic thing happened and I made up the story about uh, this magical thing. But of course, that didn't happen. You know, that, that's so they'll, they'll rationalize it and that will be that will be that because we don't want to. And, th and that's very interesting. When I meet people after screenings, they usually start talking about the movie. And after two minutes, they start to talk about their own childhoods. And, uh, and they and a lot of them and a lot of them tell me about things they believed in when they were kids, like, like imaginary friends or like the time they saw a ghost or the, those kind of things. And they really, really believed it. And then when they grew older, they, of course, said, no, no, of course not. You know? And that's normal and that's right. But it's a little bit sad, right? It we, is. We lost it's a loss something. of something. Yeah. If we put aside our potential problems with remakes, American remakes and things like that, I mean, there's bound to be discussions about both of these movies. Um, a film lover as you are, who would you want to make these two movies? I mean, whose perspective would you think would be interesting if there was a remake done? Well, that's a very, very difficult question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Usually when there's talk about remakes, you're kind of like, okay, we don't want anything to do with it. Uh, well, we won't say no if we get a lot of money, you know, that's uh, it's free money. And uh, and we made our movie with no compromise, so they can't take that away from us by making okay. another one. Absolutely. Uh, but no, that, that, that's a hard, uh, that's really a hard uh, question. Who would be a good match for those stories? We'll have to uh, uh, wake Stanley Kubrick from the dead and he can make my movie. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Eskil, thank you so much. I'm, I wish you the best of luck with this and, and uh, next Tuesday with Oscar nominations with for the worst person in the world and everything else that's going to be happening to you and Joachim. Thank you. Thank you. Real nice talking to you. Thank you so much to Eskil Vogt and good luck at the Oscars. We're keeping our fingers crossed. The Worst Person in the World is out in theaters and 
across Europe and in the US. The Innocence will have a US release through IFC Midnight in 2022 and premieres in Sweden on February 18th and I'm sure around the world as well. So go check that out. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.